This week, we are joined by Daphne Vadi Deshay, who currently resides in Montreal. Together with Roxanne Mayu, they are the creators behind the CocktailRoads.com website, which is a photo reportage website about the Canadian cocktail community. The CocktailRoads.com website shows the faces and tells the stories of bartenders, bar owners, brand ambassadors, distillers, and more. Daphne talks about starting the website during the early stages of the COVID pandemic and how she and Roxanne traveled across the country meeting people and generating content for their website. It's a great story and one you'll enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of the Industry Podcast. My name is Kip. This is Dan. What's happening with you, Dan? Not much. Just uh, hanging out, working like a chump, like every week, pretty much. Uh, mm-hmm. What about you? What's exciting in you in your life this week? Oh, you know, so we're recording this. What's the date today? September 7th. Uh, my new bar opens in two days, so I'm just a fucking ball of stress. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so uh, this is a wonderful diversion from thinking about contractors and... Um, Glassware and bullshit like that. So, yes. yeah, and inspections. I'm assuming too. Or well, that's right? already been dealt with. Thank you. Oh, really? So, yeah, oh, yeah. We're all we're all set to go. We just, I'll yeah. call the city tomorrow morning. <laughs> Take care of that. Yeah. <laughs> I do have to wash some bird shit off of my windows tomorrow, so that's an exciting way. To I spend have the day. seen the birds fly mm, yeah. right into the corner there, where they kind of hang out mm-hmm. right to your next door neighbor there at the uptown yeah. Waterloo there. So good luck with that. Yeah, if there's still bird shit there for the open on Thursday, you'll know it's because I got too drunk on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's my exciting way to spend tomorrow. But we have a great guest as usual for you this week. Daphne Vary is with us um, and we are going to bring her in very shortly. First, we should mention that if you like the podcast, you should subscribe, you should rate, you should review. We'll just keep saying it until you do it. <laughs> <laughs> and then also a shout out as always to Zach Hanna of At Zach Hanna Design for all the great artwork he does for us. And if you want to be a guest on the show, just uh, hit us up at info at the industry at industry podcast. At the industry. The, <laughs> yeah, info at the industry podcast dot club. Thanks. I'll get it right eventually. Or DM us on Instagram and links to that as to everything else we talk to will be in the show notes as well. Okay, so uh, our guest is coming to us from Montreal today, Daphne Vary. Vary? Vary. 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 Thank you. Daphne Vary. I'm so terrible with yeah, names. Way to go, Maja Cake. I know. <laughs> <laughs> she is the brains behind Cocktail Rose, which we're going to talk to about in a little bit. But we'll bring her in right now and talk about a whole bunch of stuff. Daphne, how are you? Thank you. How are you? We're doing okay. Doing well. yeah, yeah. Thanks, for, thanks for coming on the show. Mm-hmm. Thank you for inviting me. Good luck for the opening. My mind. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fucking disaster. They always are. But the good news is, as we know, I'm sure you've been through one of these before. Once you get once you get the doors open and you're back in just regular service, everything falls into place. I just got to get to that spot soon. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about you, Daphne. Like I was going through your bio and you mentioned that you... You sort of got into the bar game as a busser originally, correct? I got into hospitality as a busser. Yeah. Yeah. And then I worked in restaurants for a long time and then bars later. Right. Oh, okay. We've had a few people who have gone about this way. I, I personally find that I, and I like hiring people to be like a busser or a host, first of all, to like train them up that way because then you can really mold them and, and, and teach them the how to make the best use of their time, how to be efficient on the job. And they it's kind of almost the best way to learn the whole scope of what the serving job is going to be like. Would you agree with that? I would agree. I think also um, doing the job that you ask other people to do to help you. If you've done it before, then you understand what you're asking for and you're probably a better bartender and better server for your team as well. Yeah, not such a prick. <laughs> Because yeah, that's the, it's true. You can always tell the bartenders who have kind of never done the busing job, right? <laughs> They're just like un- unreasonable towards the uh, yeah. busers or hosts. So uh, this all started for you in Montreal. At what point did you get to the sort of serving or bartending? I well served as a busser at a very like um, popular restaurant in Montreal, the Pied Cochon. So it's kind of like learning the military style of working in a restaurant. Very, very busy, very regimented, very high speed and very high level of uh, service. Um, and after that, I did a year there. started as a buster and was a runner. And then it was at a time I was like 19, I think, after a year. And I was like, you know what? I think I've had enough stress. I 
flew, I took a like one way ticket and I went traveling for a few years, two and a half years alone with my hammock. Um, and I worked a little bit here and there in Australia, New Zealand. That's when I started to have like serving jobs, but it was more like to just have a little bit more money to keep traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I came back from my like few years trip that I got into fine dining serving. How did you find uh, serving in Australia? Because when I was there, it's it's a different game. Like it's very similar to North America in so many ways, but uh, Australians, they're a rowdy bunch. Like Quebec, I'm used to it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> For me, the biggest challenge was I actually flew to New Zealand first because I wanted to learn English the way they spoke English. I didn't really speak English at the time. So I would literally not understand a word of what people were saying to me. So like taking orders was very difficult and communicating with the team was hard. Um, but after a while, you know, I started kind of like learned my way around it. And at some point I did learn English and it was fine. But that was the biggest challenge for me. I think the language barrier was very, very strong. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. And so I, like we've had a couple of people on the show and I, who have had that same experience. And I've never really asked this question, like how like legitimately do you do that? Like you're just like learning on the fly. You're serving people, but you don't speak the same language as them. How how do you navigate that? Uh, well, keep in mind that most of communication is nonverbal. Mm. Um, so when you do travel to a country where you, you don't speak the language, well, you can understand people. You can size people. But in general, I had like basis, you know, like people that do like French immersion and then yeah. they, where they remember how to ask, like how to go to the bathroom and like fruits and vegetables and animals, everything. So I did have a, a certain basis. I would understand like the Canadian accent much better. And then mm-hmm. once I got there, my level of English was still very basic. And then the accent on top is just like learning a whole new language. It's like if you speak mm-hmm. Spanish from Spain and then you go to Mexico, you have to learn kind of a new language again. Right. Um, so, you know, I think just trust your instinct. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, and the hardest thing about learning a language is actually like just accept that you're going to sound a lot slower and a lot. I don't want to say stupid, but kind of like you try to talk in something that would usually take 30 seconds to say it takes two minutes and you stumble and it's it's annoying. And it's a difficult process where you just got to get through it, power through. And then at some point you're going to be fluid in it. But it's just you just have to. You just have to kind of like suck it up and do it. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, but that's I, I, I admire you because that's like a crazy way to go about doing just kind of throwing yourself into it. I'm like trying to learn Italian on Duolingo. It's taken me a fucking year and I still don't know shit. <laughs> <laughs> give you good basis if you go to Italy. Then. Yeah, exactly. That's what I need to do when we're allowed to go places again. Yeah. <laughs> um, OK, so you come back to Montreal and you get like almost immediately right into fine dining. Yeah, I came back to Montreal and I had an opportunity to replace my cousin that worked at a fine dining restaurant in Quebec City. From uh, It was called L'Espace MC Chef from uh, Marc Chantal Lepage, which is a very famous chef in that city. So I got an opportunity to start working there as a barista and then they saw that I had a fine dining background and then they hired me. And that's when I started to learn like, not like fine dining structure because I knew about that, but more like selling and mm-hmm. guests and understanding like how to pay service and all these things like being in control of service in a fine dining environment. And it's still to this day, I think the best food I ever had. Yeah, no <laughs> he was a fantastic chef and it was a rotating menu that changed every week. Um, Ooh, so nice. like tasting menus and always been a person people. So it's been, I've always been very easy to connect with people and then like selling for me is kind of a game. And I really, really loved it. And then I moved back to Montreal. So what would you say is sort of like the art of selling in fine dining? Like what's uh, like, I don't know, that's sort of a broad question. So take it however you want. But what what's like the uh, the secret behind like pushing expensive food and drinks on people? I think the key is not to push it. Just understand who you're talking to. You know, a very good example I had at this point, I was like literally a hippie I wasn't even wearing shoes so you know like selling not like literally and so for me like selling a glass of champagne that was like $22 per glass I couldn't even offer it because I just thought it was so ridiculous to spend that much for, for a drink and I remember my boss she really trained me on how to size people and understand the people you talk to and she was like I know for you $22 is a lot but mm. for people it's really not and I was yeah. like what and and just like that change of perspective of like you're not serving yourself you're right you're serving other people that have different needs that are there for a certain experience and some sometimes it's a birthday sometimes 
just a regular night. Sometimes they don't care about spending hundreds of dollars on a Monday. Some people care. Just like understand who you're talking to, why are they here, how much you want to spend and listen to them. You know, if you see that people are not comfortable, don't push it. It's, it's, you're just losing your, you're wasting your time. And down the line, it's like, you're not going to, you're not going to have guests that are happy when they leave. If you just push themselves, like in any type of work, I think like if you sell, be, be, be smart about it and just sell to people that want to invest in that experience. And if they don't, then it's totally fine. And just help them to have the experience they're looking for. Everything. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and I find that like, the best way you can go about doing that is just literally just having a full-on conversation with your guests at all times, right? And I've been trying to train my new staff to the news place in the, in the same manner where it's just like the whole thing is just sort of a conversation between you and your guests and try and draw out of them what they're looking for from their experience and then, then you can give it to them. And I think I totally agree and I think also have something to offer. Yeah. You know what I mean? if, if I come to your table and I'm like, I just let you choose. Like, I, I don't know you say in English, like taking control over your table, not in a like a weird way, just like, hello, welcome to my restaurant. I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to guide you through it. And here's what we offer. And don't let the people just look at a menu and be a robot and just take the order and punch it in the computer, you know, like be there for them and right. offer them something. I think it's going to change a lot as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm trying to get across as well. It's like, forget about like, you. <laughs> what I would say in my new place is just like, I never want you to just go there and be like, like, have you decided? No, no, no. Like, I'm going to help you decide. That's the, <laughs> that's the whole relationship we're trying to develop, right? So the other thing I, I struggle with with this type of service, though, is what happens when you're like in the weeds and you have you have to spend this amount of time at every single table trying to draw out of their experience. Do you get stressed out when you're like super busy? Um, this is good. Just yeah. like keep it under the... Right, yeah. The, you know, I think time management is very important. And if you're serving fine dining and you have to spend a lot of time with your table, you should have a... Um, I mean, say like a number of seats in your section that correspond to the level of service you're expecting, you know, right. um, in fine dining, you probably have 16 guests to yourself mm-hmm. as a server and that's plenty. Whereas in other type of restaurants, you can have a section of like 30 people and it's sure. different. Um, so I think time management and like, I hope for everyone that they're part of a great team that they can reach out for help and they're in the, in the weeds and you're like, man, I don't have time to go sit at table, go see your maitre d'. Who see somebody from your team to just say hello, get a drinks order going and buy some time and manage your time and understand the rhythm of, of the service, I think. Yeah, just that a- sorry, go ahead. Uh, yeah, that's like why I've become sort of a big proponent of like a tip pool scenario or a tip sharing scenario. Because if if for instance, like I'm working with you and you're stuck at a table because that's the experience that those guests want to talk to you for a very long time and like have a conversation about how their experience is going to develop. You need someone like me who's not thinking only of my own money, (laughs) you know, to come and help you with some of your other tables maybe. Right. So uh, I always find that like the places where they don't have tip pooling, a tip pooling philosophy that it's like, that's what happens. Just like, fuck that guy's table. Like, I don't, why would I care about his money, you know, or hers? You know? I personally, I've never worked in a non-shared. Oh no. Oh, it's cutthroat. <laughs> I've been pretty lucky that everywhere I work was always uh, uh, shared. So I've been good with that. But also coming back to like, if you're stuck with a table that really wants to talk to you, it also comes back at learning how to control like this need and, it's nice to talk and I love talking, but sometimes having a 15 minutes conversation at a table, maybe is not the right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. What, what's your favorite, what's your favorite trick to get away from that conversation? Oh, I think just like being very assertive about thank you so much. Or just like learning how to go. I don't, I don't think I have a, a trick. It really depends on the person. Mm. Sometimes I just straight up say, oh, it sounds super interesting. I'll get back to you right away. I just have to run for something. And just yeah. yeah. You know, like, they know you're, you're busy. They're in a busy restaurant at rush hour. So. Right. Yeah. I just I just like to go with, shut the fuck up. I got shit to do. <laughs> no, <I'm just> 
okay. So I want to. So you you were doing that for a long time, and then talk to me about the. Like, I guess you're back working at the same restaurant you were working at the restaurant group that you were working at pre-pandemic. Now, yes. Yeah, and okay, so t- uh, tell us a little bit about that restaurant group and how you got started with them and what they're all about. Okay, I think, well, okay, well, I got started with them when I, after I left Foxy, which was a very important um, step in my career. Okay, let's not gloss over it then. Let's talk about that first. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do the narrative for you. I, okay. After a while, I went to Vancouver and I started to work at the Diamond uh, over there, which is a great cocktail bar. And I started to learn about, like, cocktails, basically. Right. I, I thought I knew about cocktails. I had started to bartend, like, a couple of years before that, but I really didn't know much. Um, so that's really when I, like, started to get into cocktail bartending. And when I came back from Vancouver, um, I got this job at Foxy Restaurant. And um started as a bartender, and three years later, I left as the general manager. Um, and it was a small, small restaurant. Um and when I left, I kind of like took time. I wanted, I wanted to do like uh, more like creative menus. I had started to do consulting as well um, for different like restaurants. And the opportunity came with A5, and they needed somebody to kind of uh, take over the cocktail program or uh, spirits program for the group. It's a very big group. They have um, like 17 menus in Montreal oh, and Toronto. They have one in Toronto, and they have a little bit everywhere. Um, so it's a very big group that has, it, they have very, very nice venues as well. Um, so I started with Cat Art, which is, uh, if you heard about Time Out, you know, like the Fort Alimentaire, yep. um, the big like downtown, like many concessions with food. So they, I basically like conceptualize a whole bar program and training program for this. And it's a 75,000 square foot project. Is a Wow. Huge. Jesus. Like, so I went from like that small, intimate little <laughs> restaurant, like 40 seats to... Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like you, you're a band that hit it big, and you were like went from playing like like shitty bars to stadiums. Exactly, <laughs> like my weekly sales of gin in a night every day. Yeah. <laughs> wow, uh, oh, yeah, that's crazy. So, like, what are the differences in like what? Like, I mean, obviously, there's many differences, but what, touch on some of the ones that you would say are the most important differences between going from like a small cocktail lounge type bar to like a massive project like that. What, what were the big eye-openers for you? Um, wow, it's very big difference. Yeah. Different in almost every aspect. Um, product availability was a huge thing that I had to deal with. Because if you sell a lot, high volume, there's so many amazing products. I was, I was more like a, used to work with um, smaller producers. Um, Foxy was like a natural wine list. Um, so we tried to have more like natural products. So just, yeah, less of the bigger brands, let's say. So I wasn't so used to work with the bigger volume um, of spirits. So when I started to take over like the back bar over there, create the back bar, it was very difficult to have a diversity of smaller producers because I realized that I couldn't, I couldn't have small producers because literally they just couldn't provide enough volume for us. Um, so I think learning how to navigate the bigger brands mm. was part of the adventure. But the difference is tremendous on every aspect. I mean, how you train your staff how you set up for service, uh, how many homemade ingredients can you afford or not. And also like staff training is an issue because staffing is very difficult and was already difficult back then. So, you know, to have consistency when you have six bartenders at the same time that don't have, that are so busy, they don't even have time for like anything because the volume was extremely, extremely, extremely busy when we, right when we opened. Um, so all of these things and more, I would say. Yeah. How do you even do that? Like, I, I find it so difficult to train like six people who work for me. <laughs> so how do you go from that to like training this massive staff? Like what do, what's the form? Like, I don't know what is a formula or like, what's your strategy for like training a massive amount of people and also coming from like a, like you come from fine dining and small cocktail bars. So you're used to perfectionism. Like it's probably going to bother you if things are not done exactly right so how do you deal with that with a giant staff well you meet people where they are no so you know i wouldn't start by trying to like i don't know like i started with the basic and i'm um, i have quite an academic background i went to university quite a lot and i love documents and sheets and <laughs> like i don't know like all this like graphics and um so for me it's very very structured there's like my my training documents are in a binder everything is there 
like my martinis, how much you put in a dry, in a wet, a dirty, slightly dirty, extra dirty, filthy dirty, like everything is categorized, everything is there on hand, available for everyone, and I'm present. Yeah. The word also is like, it's easy to just train, but once, if you're not there to support your staff while they're trying to learn what you're trying to teach them, then they don't have a person of reference to teach them that, and then that becomes very difficult. Well, and don't take this the wrong way, but you're like the perfect person to run a place like that because you're a bit of a nerd then. Like, it's like, no, like with the sheets and the documents. And my wife's like that as well. And she's like running the new place. It's so it's amazing to watch. But she loves like, all, like the clo- the opening list and the closing list and the the notes for the wines. Like she's just, she just throws herself into it. And I'm like, that is the, that's exactly what you want as like an owner of someone running your business for you, right? So the challenge, the challenge is to get people to look at it. Yeah. Oh fuck! I know. I got. I, I, yeah. My wife's sending out all these tasting notes over email, and she's like, "Is anyone reading these?" I'm like, "Fuck no." Am I the only one responding to those emails? You are actually. Yeah. Uh, they just use them or not, but if they don't use them, my my point is always like, if you don't want to look at the list, that's okay. People um, think differently, learn differently. Mm. But if you don't do your clothes properly. Then I will teach you to Yeah, yeah. Well, the list and just learn it in your own way, but do it correctly, you know? Yeah, just, like, yeah, learn it however you want to learn it, but make sure it's fucking learned at the end of the day, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so at some point, um, you also get into some competition style bartending, right? Like you said, uh, I think in your bio it says you won a speed rail competition. I did speed rack. I, I made it to the national finals for um, um, speed rack was the first competition that I did. And it really, it's really the one that really got me to meet people from the bartending community because I, like I said, I learned how to, like, the cocktail bartending in Vancouver. So when I came back to Montreal, I didn't know many people in the cocktail scene. And working at Oxy was a fine dining expensive restaurant, so it wasn't as great a place that you know, to go for a drink. Um, so doing speed rack really got me to meet a lot of amazing people from the cocktail industry in Montreal, and that, that's really what got me to the scene uh, more locally. In Quebec, and I did that. The next year, I also helped organize it. And then, oh, well, last during the pandemic, I really tried to keep myself busy and stimulated. And I did the world class, which was uh, quite an experience. Mm. Uh, very intense, very exciting. Got to learn a lot of things and got to work very hard for it. Um, but I actually made it to uh, the top four, the final top four at the end. Yeah, that's amazing. So I okay. So I want to talk a little bit about all of those competitions. We've had quite a few people on the show who have done these competitions, and uh, generally all of them say that the best thing about it has been the people they meet during the competitions and like trading ideas with each other, etc. I'm assuming you feel the same way about that. Um, but specifically with the the speed rack competition, like. So, just well, describe it to our guests or to our listeners. Sorry, I, I'm still in bar mode. Guests, yeah. no listeners. They're listeners on a podcast. <laughs> well, they're our guests. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, sure, they're our guests. Um, uh, talk to our listeners about exactly what the speed rack competition entails, and uh, yeah, and then we can talk a little bit more about it. Uh, speed rack is a competition that's actually a charity. So it uh, was created by women for women. It helps um, raise money and awareness for breast cancer. Um, so how it works basically is that there's a first round of uh, elimination where uh, many people try to well submit and do the regionals. Regionals are called. So you do the regionals and then they select people that go to the nationals. And basically at the nationals, you have to uh, know a lot of classics by heart. And once you get on stage, they tell you it's two by two. We're like one against each other. And then they tell you, okay, you have to make this, 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 and this cocktail. And then you just set up your well and set up your thing and you just go. And you have to change the size and your cocktails have to be good and fast. Fast, so it's a speed competition. And then, so basically, like, there's four people that go against each other and then they eliminate and then it's two and two and then there's just two finalists one person right so yeah this year I made it to the last two so I knew uh, and I made it to the final final two and people were like the, this person basically so that's how I could meet a lot of people um, oh that's great yeah 
Yeah, so uh, we had somebody else on the show who had done that, and maybe even one in one year. And I, I'm sorry, I'm. We've done a lot of these episodes now, and I'm basically old and senile. From so, uh, San Francisco, right? Yeah, that's right. But I can't. I'm. Well, you can go back to our archives. People should be listening to the archives anyway, but because obviously I can't remember. So, <laughs> but uh, the one thing she said about it was that. Um, that, that even though it's like highly competitive, one-on-one, one-on-one, on one that it was like, it didn't feel that way to her, that it was just like sort of like camaraderie the whole time. And I think if all competitions is kind of that weird, or it should be that weird anyway, uh, Speedrock is very specific for that. Like the One of the main goals is also like for women, there's not so many women bartenders. Um, right. And not So one of the one of the main goals is also to uh, get uh, women to meet each other and, and work together. And like I think the best example is that I remember the first year I was on the stage at the finals and there was a cocktail that I just never saw in the list of classics in the So I just never heard about it and I didn't even know what was in it. And I was like, oh, I'm fucked. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't even know what's in it. Um, like, not even an idea. So I turn around and I look at her and I'm like, hey, do you know what this cocktail is? And she's like, yeah, sure. And then she just gave me her, her cheat list. I wrote it down on my tape and then I did it. And oh, that's awesome. Like, that's exactly what it is. And even uh, with Cocktail Road, you know, we traveled across Canada. Some of the people that actually hosted us along the way were people that I met, women that I met in Iraq in years like this. The community building is, is, is exceptionally strong, I think, in that competition. That's great. And so for the national one, um, uh, you were doing that during the pandemic? Oh, the speed rack was before 2000. No, no, I'm talking about the, uh, the, the other one you were talking about. The, yeah. World class, yeah. Yeah, world class, sorry, yeah. Um, I was in Vancouver during the pandemic, and I entered from the West Coast, and I ended up being so how did they do that during the pandemic they had an exceptional amount like level of organization that i've never seen before definitely the best organized competition i've ever seen um basically all of the their, like qualification and the regionals were held online and then for the national it, it waited a long time to confirm with depending on the law and the regulation and once we were able to go, everybody had to get tested before arrive before taking the plane. And once we arrived there, we were treated as a as a like a TV producer set. You know what I mean? So if we were in a closed bubble. We didn't leave the hotel or the place where the competition was held. Ah. We were only maximum ten people in one at any given time. Ah. We really followed the same rules than a production, like TV production. Wow, that's crazy. So it's funny because I listen to, like, I like to, for instance, I like I love watching basketball. And when they first did the um, the NBA season, when they were in the bubble in the in at the beginning, when they first started doing it, and last year, I guess this would have been when the pandemic first hit, I would hear all these stories about people. Oh, we can't leave the hotel, and we're like, what was that experience like for you? Like, with regards, to, like, just break it down for our listeners for like, you know, like eating and socializing and like like how much were you stuck by yourself like just describe the experience i was only stuck by myself when i wanted to be by myself because you wake up world class is very intense it's it's like there's not one challenge this year there was seven um for three days you know you start at 8 a.m and you keep going until 6 p.m um so you know you can just go to have breakfast whenever you want and sometimes, you know, sometimes you don't necessarily want to talk when you haven't really been sleeping for a week and you have the stress. We were talking about stress earlier. World class, like the, the stress management is crazy because it's not once. It's like once you're at the fourth challenge and you have so many things in your mind and you've just been like pushing, pushing your, your energy for like a long time. It's been, it becomes very difficult. So I would say... It was nice at the hotel that we were together. Some, like any group, you know, there's always people that kind of connect more with each other. Some different people already knew each other, and sometimes we go for dinner all together at the same time. We're ten finalists, so it works. Um, mm-hmm. And I never really felt alone at all. Oh, that's good. Yeah, but but you couldn't leave the hotel at any point, right? Well, we 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 could leave the hotel when we went to the competition. So they rented the what is it called the MLS. 
You're from Toronto, no? Yeah, uh, close to, yes. Kitchener, yeah. Where's the, the hockey game? Oh, at uh, ACC, Air Canada Center? Rogers Center now, it's called. Is it? Is it? Yeah. Oh, shit. We changed it. Yeah. Oh, it's Scotiabank Center. Scotiabank Center, yeah. It was a walking distance from the hotel where they had to come to. We could just walk to the competition, and then there's different rooms for different challenges, and the judges would change also, so there was never too many people in one room at the same time. Mm. Um, and they divided us between two groups sometimes, so when it wasn't your time to compete, you could chat with the other people. But um, honestly, we chatted and we socialized, of course, and then at the end of the competition, like after it's done and there's a winner, now everybody mingled a lot more because the stress kind of like goes away. Yeah. Socializing yeah, that's that's amazing. I, I, it's so cool that they still did that during the pandemic because that would seem like a very difficult thing to pull off. But it sounds like they nailed it. So, I honestly, I'm very, very, very impressed at the level of organization. It's a very strong. Team. And mm. I'm pretty amazed that they managed to do it as well. And even once we were there, there was no flaws in the organization. Everything was scheduled. It happened when it was scheduled. And everything worked out. That's. That's great, yeah, and and like a great creative outlet for like all of us who are like, well, I mean, for you specifically, but like for people who are like been just stuck at home, nothing to do, that you could still have that sort of creative outlet during this brutal time for specifically hospitality workers, right? That's that must have been awesome. It also happened at a time when I wasn't in a management position, and I think that helped me a lot to have more free time and more creativity, a bit less stress. I think uh, for the pandemic. Using that time to be more creative was a good time because it was very right? Yeah, and like dark times for like our industry, right? Like it's very easy when you're like we're stuck at home during this period to like kind of go within yourself and think, what am I even doing in this industry? We've lost so many people in the industry for the exact same reason. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit now, actually, because you're back in a management sort of like, well, sorry, describe exactly what your role is right now with the restaurant group. I just, uh, just recently went back with the group as a project director. So I'm in charge of doing, for now, one restaurant. So I'm conceptualizing and then operationalizing. <laughs> it's a word in English, but taking care yeah. of all the Um I do all the conceptualization and the training and the And once it's open, I make sure it operates well and then add some breakout training and then move on again. Move on to the next spot. Uh, yeah, so you're in the same position as me right now. It's like, how hard are you finding it to find like qualified staff to? I haven't gotten to the hiring yet. I'm looking forward to it there. I can picture it. I hear about it. It was already difficult in Montreal before I left. I cannot imagine right now. Um, I'm, I'm a very optimistic person by nature, so you know I'm not going to... Good, you'll need to be. <laughs> it's going to happen, I'm going to stress, but for now I'm not thinking about it. Enough, thing to, um, enough things to think about yet. Yeah. Um, I'll get there, but... It, it's just it's yeah it's it just sucks like there were so many good people that we lost because again I get it like when a when a an entire industry almost gets wiped out during a pandemic then people are start to think like what the fuck am I doing in this industry let's think about other options right and so we've lost so many really strong service industry people and now I find at least in my businesses I'm literally just dealing with no people with zero experience and trying to train them up and both of my places are kind of on the higher end style like where you would normally not hire someone who doesn't have less than say I don't know eight to ten years experience and now I'm hiring people with zero it's crazy there's a pandemic that like made it made it happen that people left the industry but maybe it's also a time for like self-reflection of why so many people don't see it as a sustainable career and what we can change to provide a work environment that's sustainable for people that want to pursue that class you know mm-hmm. it's not just the fact that it's a difficult business in, but i think it also says a lot about our practices and it's a good opportunity to maybe have a look inward and uh, try to better our practices and how we treat that and yeah. And like, so, so in your opinion, like, what are some of those things that could be changed on our end to make it a more like approachable or appealing job for people? Well, I think 
I think for a long time, I don't know, yeah, it's pretty much the same. In, in Quebec, anyway, we always refer to like, oh, it's, it's a start in the streets, okay, that we don't follow certain laws or certain rules or the, the level of like, how you say, toxic behaviors that are tolerated in our industry is really, uh, it's quite it's quite wild how much crazy behavior, like uh, toxic behavior we, we accept and yes. we minimize it, you know? I think one of the thing is like, you know, just like a safe space would be a good start and maybe working toward a more inclusive environment and making different types of people feel welcome to be part of a team and making sure that all their, these people are safe when they work. You know, that it, that's also like minor things that people think are not like really important, but you know, that, that, that we minimize a lot of, I don't know how to phrase it, but often we accept a lot of behaviors that are problematic. So I think voicing those concerns and recognizing those problematic behaviors is a good starting point. Yeah, I know. I agree. And it's funny. We, I mean, Dan can attest to it as well. We've been talking to a lot of people since the pandemic hit. It's funny. We, what did we start the show about a month before the pandemic hit? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So basically this whole show has been talking about talking to service people through the pandemic and we've been getting a lot of the same, um, uh, the same ideas of what you were just kind of talking about, where it's just like the, it's maybe going to be an eye opener for the industry about how we need to change. And, and maybe if there's one good thing that comes out of the awful like 18, 20 months we just had or whatever, and they're still enduring, it's that some of these changes can be enacted and, and, and make a more positive experience for people who want to work in the service industry. Because it's, it's an amazing industry and everybody who we talk to loves it still, right? So. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. So speaking of which, speaking of like loving the industry, this is t- a perfect segue. This, uh, this is, I'm doing an amazing hosting job right now. What an amazing segue <laughs> this is going to be. Let's talk about Cocktail Roads because if this is Cocktail Roads is a love letter to the industry in my mind. Thank you. Nice. Yeah. Um, so basically, Cocktail Roads was born early pandemic. Uh, my partner and I all left the job due to COVID, and we earned out and hanging out for a couple of months and then we were thinking that it was really sustainable for us to just be depressed on a couch for a month and we realized it was the first time we had time off together in seven years hmm. and then I looked at her and I was like ah oh, you're a fantastic photographer and I'm a pretty decent bartender and I know quite a lot of people in the industry and we just realized that we could put this together to um, create a platform for the community um, at a time that were pretty rough times for most of us. Mm-hmm. So we thought, you know, if we can't like work, maybe we can like network and help people, um, like share people's stories and get people to be able to promote themselves also. That was a big part of it. Um, so, you know, if you're stuck in your couch and you can't see anyone, self-promotion is difficult. Yeah. Um, one way to be like, hey, um, you can you can show your skills. And also we thought, guests don't go to bars anymore and guests love to sit at a bar and ask the bartender about their stories and so we decided to um to get people to tell us about their story um and then so basically we have an interview i do all the writing i transcribe and then i do an article to tell the story of the person um and then we also ask people to showcase one cocktail it can be a classic that they like or a creation that they're proud of um and then there's also a little video it used to be funny and awkward questions because we thought it was good for other people to see the vibe and the personality of the bartender but some people are camera shy so now we uh we we changed it to put out videos as well mm-hmm. um, so the whole goal was to break isolation um at the times where we were all very isolated um and to get some self-promotion and put people together a connection and showcasing the industry as a whole as well you know yeah then i think it, it does a lovely job of doing it uh it reminded me a lot of um Josh Finley and the work he does with Bartender Atlas as well. Like, and his is mostly Instagram based, obviously, but yours is, uh, you, you have your own website and I was scrolling through it today and it's just like, uh, it, yeah, you know, like for, for those of us who are in the service industry and like kind of miss what it used to be, like we're back working now, but things aren't like they used to be. And to see all these, uh, these beautiful photos of people in the service industry and write-ups about them and their cocktails. It, it was it was inspiring for at least for me to get back going with with this shit. You know, I think one of the one of the reasons also you know when we were talking about staffing problems, um, we choose to include not just bartenders but, but 
a lot of people related to the cocktail industry. So we featured our brand ambassadors, bar owners, distillers, cocktail photographers, our content creators, and by telling them their, their story and show, showing like that there's many avenues to the industry. Mm. Was one of the reasons we wanted to inspire younger people to be like, if you don't want to work night times and weekends your whole life, the industry is huge and there's so many avenues that you can that you can take. Um, so that's one of the reasons why we decided to showcase a wide array of people and include all kinds of professional related to the cocktail. Yeah, it's funny. I think we, the same thing kind of happened to us when we started doing this. We were like, okay, people who just literally like have a job working at a bar or restaurant then expanded to like just the same thing happened yeah, to us. Like distillers. We, and- yeah, distillers and like people doing uh, cocktail to go programs and like um, brand of bunch of brand ambassadors. A lot of brand ambassadors. And so, yeah, all of this is part of the industry, right? So yeah, and, and so it's funny. I, I like when I first saw your page. I was like, hey, it's, it seemed it, you're kind of doing the visual version of what we're trying to do as well." So I thought it was great to be able to have you on and, and talk about it. But I uh, let's talk about your partner as well and the photos. Like so I, before we start recording, I was telling you about how amazing the photos are and and how my wife is also a photographer who does all our page for my bars and, and how and we were chatting about how both of us have learned what a difference that makes. Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, Roxanne has been, a, so my partner is Roxanne, she's the co-founder of Coca Roads. And um, she has been, she studied a professional photography like 10 years ago. So she's been a photographer for a while. Um, but through Cocktail Roads, she basically self-taught herself about video editing. And she had a background in web programming, uh, but she still like took many classes to understand. So she does everything web related, image related and social media uh, management. She does all of that, too. So I think for her, it was a great way to learn other skills that she didn't already have. And she she got quite a portfolio right now for cocktail pictures and all. So when we came back, she's actually she's just starting her own business right now of uh, content creation and social media management. Oh, Um, good. Yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. 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 So my wife was like a wedding photographer and then she just got tired of dealing with bridezillas. And then she was like, she sort of morphed it. Like, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to photograph. Like, um, I'm just going to take photos for fun. And she started by doing like, you know, cocktail photos for our Instagram feeds for the bars and stuff. And she loves it. But I think at some point I'm going to have to start paying her. <laughs> She's just going to run out of time. But, uh, um, yeah, so, so for us, we started doing this show live. So the first few episodes were like people we knew locally and we would like um, just have them down to my bar and we would chat at the bar on like one of the nights off. Actually, I think the first one we did one night that it was open and that was a disaster. The sound quality was awful. Yeah. But <laughs> but you have actually been traveling around and doing this. So t- uh, during the pandemic, talk to us a little bit about how the challenges of doing that. It was quite a challenge to stay safe the whole time. Uh, well, basically what we did is we put all of our things in a storage. We got rid of our apartment and we packed our little hatchback with a portable photo studio, portable bar, camping gear, and clothes. So our car... Clothes, so that's important. <laughs> um, so our little, our little car, uh, Gertrude, we call her Gert, uh, was very packed and heavy. And we basically always... like we So we started from Montreal, then we went to Quebec City, from Quebec City to Halifax. And then from Halifax, we crossed over to all the way to Vancouver. And we cool. had to adapt a lot for because of COVID uh, evolution. So we actually were pretty lucky that all of the traveling kind of happened be- between the first wave and the second wave. We did have to isolate for certain places like going to Nova Scotia. We weren't we couldn't go at all. It was closed. Uh, the Atlantic was closed until and we waited one month in Quebec to see if it would open because we really wanted to include smaller markets that. Yeah. Don't don't include it often. So we waited and then it finally opened. So we, we isolated two weeks in Nova Scotia before going to Halifax. And I was totally okay with that. You know, uh, we, we take COVID quite seriously. Uh, sure. And every time we could do the meetings outside, that's what we would do. And we we did a lot of meetings outside. And then if it was inside, we'd have our mask and we'd just follow the provincial procedures everywhere. But once we finished Toronto, we were going to Manitoba and I was so looking forward to go because I never did. And we really making an effort to include smaller markets. And on our way there, luckily, it takes forever to cross Ontario. Um, it's a but- long drive on that train. Trans- Canada. 
And boring. Yeah, I've done that once. <laughs> I will never do that yeah. again. Yeah. <laughs> we got a phone call from our prison of contact in Manitoba, and he was like, so the province just shut the borders, and we're on our way there. And I was like, okay, well, surprise. Um, and that was when the second wave was starting slowly to rise, or people started to talk about it. Um, so we actually drove across Manitoba without stopping. And then we arrived on the West Coast and I didn't have time to contact the people. So I do all of the talking and the con- I choose who mm-hmm. to do all these things. So I just last minute um, had to contact people from Saskatchewan and the people were super nice and they responded quickly. So we managed to do a few interviews in Saskatchewan and then Alberta. But we hurried to get to the West Coast because we didn't want all the borders to close and be stuck somewhere in the middle. So we hurried our way to Vancouver. And then the second wave was kind of like pretty much starting. And we decided to set base until things were calm again. So we set base in Vancouver. I worked there and lived there before. So I have a network over there, friends and um, almost family uh, and family there, actually. So I got a job there with uh, my friend Chris Enns, who just had a... Uh, bar manager position and we're just building a new team and I got to work with him and I lived by the beach and Ooh. it was the best isolation place to be in. yeah that sounds all right <laughs> if you have to isolate <laughs> yeah well yeah that, I, that's super cool and I'm like I, I like I, the dedication that it took for you guys to do that during a pandemic where you're like you don't know what's going to happen anywhere you go like it's for Dan and I, basically, we just hang out in his, this, his little studio that he built and we drink beers and we talk to cool people over Zoom, which also, I mean, there's challenges of the Zoom part and Dan has to do a lot of work with the editing and stuff that I don't know anything about. Yeah, but, let's push some buttons. <laughs> but, like, the travel part, I think, is really cool. And, like, I don't know, I, before, like, who knew where this show was going to go before the pandemic hit? Like, we might have thought about, like, going mobile dan has mobile equipment as well and like going to people and interviewing them as well and then they say and then zoom's just very easy for interviews we've kind of just like settled into this area but i i think that there's there's some there's at least a little something you lose from like the live face-to-face interaction it's definitely it's definitely yeah it's, it's different i think what makes our project special uh, or different than not, not special. There's many special projects around here. But I think it's special, so you can use it. <laughs> no, but I mean, like maybe uh, more different it's, or yeah. unique. The word voila, unique. Yeah. <laughs> um, that basically, uh, we go and we meet the people. Yeah. So we have to do the photo reportage. We take their pictures. We interview them. Get the article going. So it's a lot of time. Yeah, you get to hang out a little bit. Yeah, but it's about like ten hours of work per person. Right. 135 participants. Imagine that's a lot. Yeah. Um, so it makes a bigger workload, but then it also makes it very nice that we actually get to meet the people and like get a real sense of who they are. And, Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. And just to conclude on what I was saying about the trip, we waited in Vancouver until, um, until we could travel in the West coast as well. So like adaptability has been key. We couldn't go to Vancouver Island for a very long time because it was closed. So we had to wait to leave Vancouver to be able to go to the island to finish the interview and to come back. So I think maybe one thing that this pandemic has taught most of us in the industry is that adaptability. It's Mm -hmm. we need to be adaptable and we need to be a bit more flexible than maybe we'd like to. Um, But it's like like you, uh, you have to adapt, and it turned out that it's pretty great content, you know. So yeah, it's nice. It's it's nice uh, little terms that we don't expect. You know? Yeah, and I appreciate you using the word adaptability because I'm so fucking sick of the word pivot. <laughs> pivot yeah that's like the buzzword for everything it's like everything was like oh yeah we had to pivot like for instance like i my original bar is like a speakeasy so it's like you know back alley you gotta give the password ring the doorbell come down this like dirty staircase and you open into a nice like cocktail lounge and then i had to pivot into <laughs> like putting a patio outside in a parking lot because you couldn't come to like otherwise no business whatsoever right because there was no indoor dining and and i hate it i fucking hate that patio like i'm glad <laughs> business wise i'm glad to have it but it sucks like it's not that's not what i was trying to do but yeah. pivot I, I was i i interviewed and featured ember bruce i don't know if you know her no no so ember is the operating partner at Kiefer bar oh okay yeah yeah so we were chatting and she was saying how like like pre-pandemic just like changing a, se- a seasonal menu 
was like a source of stress for her because she doesn't like change so much. Mm-hmm. And it's like post-pandemic, Kiefer, they actually created like a whole like Kiefer yard, like a whole parking lot that they turned into an outside bar. They started to do cocktail classes, cocktail kits, like so many things that post like one year later, she's like, now I'm okay with change. I can deal with it just because you just yeah. have to adapt constantly. You know, you take a decision, but then the few weeks later you have to change that decision because it doesn't work with the new regulation it's just constant change right 100 percent. and i and i think maybe that's not going to end up being the worst thing down the line for the industry it sucked while you're going through it especially because i agree like like you know like i had my concept that's my fucking concept i didn't want to pivot or adapt and like and then but it's kind of like makes you open your mind a little bit to be like okay be a little bit more open to more possibilities and 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 that's okay sometimes and sometimes it's very difficult to Yeah. And don't worry, when this when we get past the pandemic, I'll go right back to my fucking regimented self. But <laughs> but for now, it's been good. Anyway, Daffy, this has been a pleasure. We feel like you're like a uh, like-minded spirit to us. We're kind of doing the same thing. We just do audio, and you do more visual and and like on the on the page. And but I, I we love Cocktail Roads. Everybody should check it out. Uh, you want to give us the website? Just uh, yeah. www.cocktailroads.com See, pretty simple, folks. Nice. Pretty simple. <laughs> it's the, it's the, the, the recipes in the title, as I like to say. And as, <laughs> and as always, we'll have the link in the show notes. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Keep doing what you're doing. I do think your website's a love letter to the industry, and I love the industry as much as you do. So keep doing what you're doing, and best of luck with the new opening in the restaurant and getting back to what you're doing, getting back to you know like our regular lives, pre-pivots. <laughs> <laughs> having me and best of luck to you for your opening in a couple of days oh thanks yeah yeah i'm just i'm gonna take a bath with a toaster probably tonight but (laughs) if i survive that then uh then the bar will open daphne thank you so much and everybody should check out cocktail roads correct thank you very much yeah